3-3-5-8-3-3. Atención, últimas plazas en nuestros campamentos de verano. Además, si contratas la segunda quincena para nuestro campamento del Guijo en Salamanca, obtendrás 100 euros de descuento. Más información en grupobaugan.com. to Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on this program, I'm going to talk about something, something that is taken very, very seriously in the United States, and that is the role of the reenactor. Now, the verb there is to reenact. Act, of course, uh, actuar, uh, to enact, uh, realizar, it could also be escenificar, and to re-enact is to um, give life, a, a kind of a theatrical life, to something that has already happened. Usually a historical event, quite often a battle. And I know that there are many reenactors in Spain and many occasions in which this is done, especially uh, people who like to dress up as, as Romans and as Celts or Iberians or Celtiberos or Well, just recently, in Madrid, uh, for the festival of um, the 2nd of May, there was a reenactment of the French troops, the rebellion on the part of the local people, the El, El Motin, the riot against French troops, and I was not there. I missed it. Uh, I saw pictures. It looked... Very authentic, and I'm very sorry I missed it. I I would love to see something authentic, because maybe it's just my bad luck, but again and again, I have gone to places, villages, towns in Spain on local festival days when they have people in costume playing roles, but... This is not a reenactment. Um, it, it has absolutely nothing to do with reality. It is, in many cases, as close to genuine history as uh, La Venganza de Don Mendo. Because, after all, that is what they are looking for, a tourist attraction uh, so that people will visit the town on a festival day. And historical accuracy is not a priority. What you get uh, quite often is people playing religious minorities, like uh, Jews or Muslims, but 
without any real dignity and of course without uh, any attempt at authenticity and it's fine i i get this uh this is it's for fun it's a tourist attraction it's not supposed to be serious these are not reenactors these are not um it, it's it's not supposed to be taken seriously now i imagine that you know the uh, the, the strangest thing that i have ever seen is along the Mediterranean coast, where in town after town you get Moros y Cristianos. And the Moros have <laughs> nothing to do with Moors. Uh, the, the Cristianos have nothing to do with Cristianos. The music uh, has nothing to do with, with, with anything in the past. It's just an excuse to, to, to dress up and and uh parade through the town but it looks very very strange unlike uh what i was talking about earlier things that i've gone you know in um places like la mancha or places like what used to be called castilla la vieja north of madrid where they they do these um they do these things for 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 tourists for you know to attract tourists the whole business of Moros y Cristianos is, is not about tourists at all. It would exist if there was no such thing as tourism. But again, it's, it's, it's ahistorical and nobody claims otherwise. Now, one of the very strangest things I ever saw with, with Moros y Cristianos, uh, that took place in Lorca, in, um, in Murcia and during Easter week, during Semana Santa. In Lorca, the, the situation is very strange. The, um, the entire place is divided. Uh, there is a blue Virgin Mary and a white Virgin Mary. And the entire town is divided between the blues and the whites. So you can imagine the, uh, <laughs> the tragedy. Uh, for example, your daughter comes to you and tells you that um, she is going out with uh, a boy whose family is white when your family has been blue for generation after generation. Uh, you, you can imagine Romeo and Juliet, the, the level of tragedy. And so in Semana Santa, uh, this is not your your average procession, not at all. It is Moros y Cristianos. It's exactly the same music and um, exactly the same costumes, except uh, that it's filled with insults. Right? You get the the public. Uh, uh, you you get um, the the statue of the White Virgin and uh, all of the blues. Yelling things like patético, which is an irreverence that, um, <laughs> that you wouldn't find anywhere else. In any case, it is by far the, uh, the least religious of any of the processions in Spain during, uh, Easter week. You know, it's curious. Uh, what, 15 years ago, something like that, there was a major earthquake in Lorca and, <laughs> 
the the big controversy was whether the earthquake had done more damage to the blues or to the whites. And all of this with uh, more than a little bit of, uh, as you say in Spanish, mala uva. And of course, he, well, even in, even in Murcia, in Murcia itself, the Nazarenos, uh, inside their robe, inside their, their costume, uh, it's all filled with candy. And so you have thousands of children along the way with bags. And as the procession <laughs> proceeds, as the procession gets going, uh, the Nazarenos begin to throw candy toward the children. In other words, just as in Lorca, Semana Santa is Moros Cristianos, well, in Murcia, in the capital, uh, Semana Santa is La Cabalgata. But again, these are, these are, uh, you yeah, know, there's a multiplicity of ways that you can do this. But, uh, let me get back to the subject of reenactment. As I say, uh, I know that there are genuine reenactors in Spain, but I have not been privileged to, uh, to be able to see a a reenactment, something taken seriously, right? Something that requires a lot of preparation, where people are deeply in their role and uh, the attackers and the defenders are trying to be as historically accurate as they possibly can. And it's all done with, with a great deal of, of dignity. No, no comedy, no, no humiliation. No funny accents for the Moors or the Jews. And if you hear music, uh, that music is not, um, conditioned by, by Hollywood movies. So let me compare that. Let me juxtapose that to what happens in the United States and especially in, say, things like the Civil War or, um, colonial times. You have reenactors who who do this as a hobby and a passion, and uh, they are meticulous. And quite often, it is it's much more than a hobby. They're spending all their free time trying to get it right. Now, these are almost always connected to um, historical sites, historical sites like battlefields, Civil War battlefields. And this is important in turn because, um, you know, uh, tourists come to these places, millions of tourists come to these places every year in order to feel connected to the past. And it works. Most people in these places, they're, they're very actively engaged and, um, care about that, that connection with the past and believe that this is authentic. And this is the way it, it should uh, it should be. Um, museums and historical sites, heritage sites, inspire a lot more trust in people than, say, teachers do. In part because uh, teachers, well, uh, high school history teachers generally have no no training, no background in history. In 
places like um, Louisiana or West Virginia, Minnesota, um, more than 85% of the people teaching history have never taken a university course in that subject. Now, in some places, uh, it gets better. In, in, um, in the state of New York, uh, it's only 37%. Only one third of the teachers have zero training in history. But even there, there's no requirement that a history teacher should know anything about history. And, um, similar to, um, what is happening here in Spain, uh, the humanities in general are, uh, in, in decline, in, in free fall, increasingly abbreviated or simply eliminated from the curriculum because the people who, um, who adopt the standards for the schools, um, have come to the conclusion that, uh, humanities are irrelevant for the coming generation. Whereas, uh, with everything we're learning about artificial intelligence today, uh, we understand that the coming generation is going to have real problems. Um, the things that, um, you know, people study that were supposed to be safe, you know, like, um, say, law or business, you know, the kind of things that uh, parents pressure their children to study are going to be the very first things to succumb to artificial intelligence so that um, relatively quickly a, a degree in law or a degree in business science, business administration, empresariales, or even economics will not only not be a guarantee of future employment, uh, it will be something that is, is no longer necessary. At, at that point, uh, the humanities are precisely what will distinguish us from artificial intelligence. But uh, the great majority of the coming generation will have very little exposure, at least academically. So, again, uh, getting back to that, um, in the United States, which is no better than Spain in all of this, in the United States, yes, uh, people do not trust their teachers, uh, do not trust the uh, academic formation of their teachers or uh, how much historical knowledge their teachers have, and they are right not to trust that, but they do trust historical sites and yes many of these are restored you've got that um, ancient <laughs> dichotomy in in restoration right of uh, the father of historical re- restoration and 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 the recovery of tradition and so forth in the english speaking world was uh, a man named john ruskin who believed not in restoration, but rather in conservation, so that if something is ruined, it it should stay ruined. You can visit it, but you will have to use your imagination to think about what it used to look like, while the, the other idea 
the idea of restoration was characterized by a contemporary of Ruskin's, um, the Frenchman, uh, Violet Le Duc. And Violet Le Duc, uh, for example, at, at age 30, um, he was given Notre Dame, right, to, to, to restore. And so he put things in Notre Dame that had never been there, like the, the gargoyles. And yeah, everybody loves those gargoyles, but they're not genuine. They're not authentic. They're not historical. Or, uh, for example, he was restoring the, um, uh, the old city in, uh, Carcassonne in southern France. And he knew that the roofs, right? The, um, tejados, the roofs there, uh, they had always been tile, right? Tejados de, de tejas. It was ceramic. Traditionally, there's a line running through France. North of that line, you have pizarro. North of that line, you have slate. And south of that line, you have tile. It's very curious. Uh, it's, it's practically the same line in France as uh, butter and oil, right? There's a little line running through France. North of that line, you cook with butter. South of that line, you cook with oil. In any case, um, Carcassonne is unquestionably south of that line. Uh, there was never slate there. But uh, Viollet-le-Duc, well, he he said that it didn't look right without slate. And so, yes, if if you go there today, that's exactly what you see. You have a, a kind of restoration and and more. And, of course, in Spain, um, you have case after case of um, restoration done by people with, with no training. Uh, for example, the uh, Eche Homo in Borja, that task was given to an 81-year-old woman, and the result became notorious all over the world. Uh, very recently, um, in Palencia, there was a sculpture that was restored stone sculpture, and and it looks like a potato head, right? When um, somebody takes a potato, when children take a potato and put little eyes in the potato and a a nose and mouth, quite often of plastic, you you put these things into the potato. And yes, it, it, all right, outside of Spain, it is called the potato head of Palencia, but again, what of the um, what are the big things? Uh, Spain tended more toward Viollet le Duc and less toward John Ruskin, so that, uh, for example, um, the all right, the great patron of Spanish heritage and Spanish heritage sites is Benigno de la Vega Inclán. El, el Marqués de la Vega Inclán. So that uh, of today, for example, the El Museo de Romanticismo, that is that was his private collection. And if you go to uh, Sevilla, the uh, the entire Barrio de Santa Cruz is something he was responsible for. He did many many things in Spain, and yes, there are many plenty of people today who say it was um it was badly done it should not have been done like this what uh, whatever was authentic is now 
gone. Places like the church in Llevana or Santa Maria de Melque yeah, next to Toledo. You can regret uh, some of that. But again, let, let me tell you something that uh, they did in the United States, which, as far as I know, has not been done in Spain. Starting about the 1930s, uh, the Rockefellers, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, no, uh, the late 20s, actually, uh, way back then, um, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, looking around, they found that um, Williamsburg, which had been the colonial capital of Virginia, right? It was a Jamestown for a while, but then it moved to Williamsburg, and uh, the capital was Williamsburg, for example, at the time of the American Revolution. Now, this area uh, had been untouched in the Civil War and uh, during the time of the Great Depression was still largely intact. Many of those buildings were still there. The the genuine heritage uh, had been modified, yes, but, but only slightly in some cases, so that Colonial Williamsburg, where, where all the founding fathers had been, Colonial Williamsburg, which which had been the capital of Virginia for 81 years, was ready to be purchased and and restored. Now, this took a very long time. And there were a lot of difficult decisions. For example, if you go there after dark, everything is lit by candlelight. It is absolutely amazing. It is a um, living history museum. And so all the people working there are reenactors. All of the people working there are playing roles and have studied very hard for the roles they're playing. Um, many of the people you see are involved in handicraft, right? Uh, making windows, making baskets, making paper, printing seditious material. Others, of course, are, um, you know, they have a higher position in the hierarchy, right? The, um, the colonial governor. And yes, insofar as possible, all of these people are authentic. All of them actually lived. It is an amazing experience if you ever visit the United States. If you're ever, say, in Washington, D.C., Colonial Williamsburg is just about an hour and a half south of Washington, D.C., by car. And um, everybody's very proud of it. I mean, they took um, the Japanese emperor, Hirohito, to uh, colonial Williamsburg. Um, Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain visited twice. And it, it is just an incredible place. When you do have <clears throat> reenactors doing this on a day-to-day basis, uh, quite often you discover things, uh, things about... A daily life back then that you wouldn't otherwise know that are not part of the archaeological record. And yes, um, Colonial Williamsburg is the most famous 
and most popular, with more than a million visitors a year, uh, the most popular of the living history museums. But there are others, uh, Plymouth Plantation, where the first um, pilgrims arrived. You have a recreation. It's entirely recreated. There there were no archaeological remains to to be restored there. But um, as I say, everyone who works there has a role. And uh, for me, it was uh, it was very gratifying to be able to go there and um, interact with with my ancestors. Because as I say, these people are only too happy to show you what they do, how they do it, and how they are trying to adapt uh, to life in the new world. Now, outside Plymouth Plantation, you have the indigenous village and these people are the descendants of the original tribe there and they are not happy about their new neighbors again you can you can speak to them now their presence is something that um, you know originally they were not there but it occurred to somebody that that uh, it, it wouldn't be authentic it wouldn't be genuine without them and in Colonial Williamsburg, uh, they started thinking that um, it, it wouldn't be authentic without the presence of slaves, because presumably something like 20% of the population back then would have been slaves. So that in in the year 1979, they hired people for the first time as reenactors in the role of slaves for Colonial Williamsburg. Okay, I have to take a break. I'll be back in just a minute. escuchando Born Radio. Porque aprenden, disfrutan, conviven, juegan, experimentan, hacen amigos y lo más importante, asimilan el idioma de forma natural y pierden el miedo a hablar, abriéndose paso en este complicado mundo de la comunicación. En inglés, así son los campamentos de verano Baugan. Cada año más de 3.000 familias confían en nosotros para el aprendizaje del inglés de sus hijos, en los distintos tipos de campamentos que ofrecemos. Por ejemplo, los Urban Camps son inmersiones en inglés sin clases, talleres y actividades específicas específicamente diseñados para que los niños aprendan a comunicarse en inglés de forma natural, siempre a través del juego y la diversión, y donde vuelven a casa por la tarde, al día siguiente, más diversión. Tráelos a nuestros campamentos de verano en inglés, 911335832, 911335832, ahora con nuevas facilidades de pago, agua plazos sin intereses. Llámanos al 911335832, campamentos de verano Baugan, el líder del sector, 911335832. 5832. No lo dejes para el último momento. Aprenderán inglés mientras viven mil aventuras. No olvides preguntar por el resto de campamentos e inmersiones de la línea Junior de Baugan. Ahora puedes aprender inglés con Baugan y Alexa de Amazon. Solo tienes que decir: Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. 
Bienvenido a Aprende Idiomas con Alexa. Hoy vas a poder aprender lecciones de inglés nivel iniciación con Alexa en colaboración con Baugan. Podrás aprender desde nuevo vocabulario a pronunciación y mucho más. Cada lección contiene secciones de práctica y de preguntas. Empecemos. Veamos ahora cinco actividades con el verbo ir. To go. Ir al gimnasio es. To go to the gym. La G de. Gym. Suena casi como una H. To go to the gym. Dilo tú. To go to the gym. Correcto. Eso es. Practica inglés con Baugan y con Alexa de Amazon. Acuérdate, solo tienes que decir... Alexa, quiero aprender inglés. Esto sí que es un... Buen comienzo. Te toca. Seguro que eres súper friki de Harry Potter y no te has dado cuenta de la cantidad de palabras que has aprendido sin darte cuenta. Por ejemplo, Hufflepuff. Mm, Hufflepuff viene de Huff and Puff, que es jadear. Estás agotado. Así que ya sabes por qué esta escuela se caracteriza por ser muy exigente y los alumnos van con la lengua fuera todo el día. They're huffing and puffing. ¿Y esa escuela que se llama Slytherin? Slytherin, ¿de qué viene esa palabra? To slither es lo que hace una serpiente. Claro, por eso en esa escuela los alumnos son capaces de hablar con las serpientes y de hecho en el escudo viene una serpiente, tiene lógica. ¿Y qué me dices de Ravenclaw? Uh, esta tiene mucha chicha, it's very meaty. Ravenclaw viene de Raven, que significa cuervo, y Claw, que significa garra. Es la garra del cuervo. Y si miras el escudo, ¿qué es lo que hay? Un cuervo con las garras agarrándose. ¿Quién habría dicho que podríamos aprender tantísimo viendo Harry Potter? Sabes muchísimas palabras gracias a Harry Potter. Y no solo a Harry Potter, a películas, cómics, dibujos animados, videojuegos, todo incluido en This Book is the Shit, el tercer libro de Alberto Alonso y Damián Moya. No te lo pierdas, así se aprende. This book really is the shit. Atención, últimas plazas en nuestros campamentos de verano. Además, si contratas la segunda quincena para nuestro campamento del Guijo en Salamanca, obtendrás 100 euros de descuento. Más información en grupobaugan.com. Estás escuchando Vaughn Radio. You're listening lo que escuchas Vaughn Radio. This is Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, my name is Guy Williams, and on the first part of the program, just before the break, I was talking about a place in the United States, in the state of Virginia, 
that had been the capital of Virginia for 81 years and uh, was the capital at uh, the time of the American Revolution. And when the Rockefeller Foundation started to take interest in this place at the late 1920s and during the Great Depression, most of the buildings were were still there. Most of them were intact. Uh, this was a golden opportunity. And, of course, today uh, they have been meticulously restored, and it all looks authentic except, you know, everybody complains – it's too clean. Back then, the standards of hygiene would have been different. It would have smelled bad. And there would be a great deal more organic um, garbage, um, things that uh, things that today you do not see. So it opened up. Um, it opened up. It opened up at a time when, when you still had segregation. And so um, African-Americans could visit Colonial Williamsburg, but they could not stay in any of the hotels there. This was at a time when African-Americans traveling would have to know the uh, the hotels that could accept them. And, uh, well, by the way, uh, uh, until the 1960s, this was also true for Jews. The, um, the There were restaurants and hotels that would not accept you as a customer if you were Jewish. But the times change. Now, just before the break, I was talking about the year 1979. This is three years after the Great Bicentennial. And six people were hired as slaves. Six people were hired in the role of slaves as reenactors. And back then... Uh, it was amusing because um, some people thought it was real. Some people were shocked at the way these people were being treated. Some people want to do report this to the police, and uh, that is <laughs> that that um, that's how it's been going for decades. Quite often, you get um, people, uh, the reenactors, who are on a break. And they cross the street and they go to a fast food place to have lunch or something like that. You can see them in their costume, and it is quite amusing. But the uh, the slaves don't do that. The uh, slaves uh, feel awkward. In addition to which, there have been ugly incidents of, you know, people driving by in their cars and uh, shouting out insulting things. Now, every year at... Colonial Williamsburg, there's a big celebration on the date that King George III ascended to the throne, right the day of his coronation. And many of the problems with uh, the colonies, with the, with the New World, uh, many of them started uh, just after that time because uh, George became king with this idea that the colonies should be much more subordinate to the mother country. In any case, uh, on that day, um, it was, it, it would have been traditional. We have all kinds of documentation about how uh, people took advantage of that date to uh, sell old things, furniture, for example. And so, 
there are all kinds of public auctions. And in the year 1994, they decided that uh, the authentic thing to do would also be a, um, a slave auction, right? Subasta de esclavos in this case, a slave auction. And uh, this was very controversial because the reenactors wanted to be serious. The reenactors want it to be as authentic as possible. But how do you avoid trivialization? How do you avoid um, transforming this into entertainment? You know, because back then, uh, it was entertainment. Back then, uh, the sale of slaves, right, uh, auctions of slaves attracted all sorts of people. They didn't come to buy, they just came to watch because this was entertainment. Just like a, a public execution would attract hundreds of people, it was also considered entertainment. <laughs> And so, as I say, back back in uh, ninety four, uh, there there were many people in favor of this, and many people opposed. Uh, part of the uh, one of the arguments was that uh, you will never understand the nature of slavery unless you understand the sale of slaves and how the sale of slaves meant breaking up families and how the sale of slaves for the individual slave, how traumatic that would be so that the threat, no, the amenatha, the threat of sale, all the master needed to say was, if you do that again, I will sell you. And uh, the the threat of sale was, was very powerful as a means of control. In any case, they they did it and... The curious thing is that after the um, reenactment of a slave auction, some of the people who had been in favor were now convinced that it was a bad idea. And uh, just the other way around, uh, some of the people who had been opposed to this reenactment were now very much in favor because it uh, it puts a face on on the horror, right? It it um, shows you that the suffering we're talking about was not something abstract. You are able to see with your own eyes what this is doing to people. In any case, just as with Colonial Williamsburg, starting in the 1990s, the National Park Service, which is responsible for many of these historical places, many of these uh, battlefields, started to uh, take this into account because um, until that time there, there was no monument there, there, there was no park that had mentioned or dealt with slaves or the institution of slavery and um, with scholarly with, with this academic advice right uh, the, the experts talking about how it should be done, they began to incorporate this. And there was a huge resistance from heritage groups. The um, 
United Sons of Confederate Veterans, for example, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the Southern Heritage Coalition with um, debates and um, highly emotional arguments. And this was true on a local level and on a national level. You have to remember, um, 11 million Americans visit these civil war sites every year and this is not this is not what they want they want uh, something um nostalgic they want something that makes you feel good uh, they want something that makes you proud of your roots proud of your your heritage uh they will not look at uh, the past as something oppressive they they do not want uh, racism or exploitation mentioned so that, for example, in 1998, 1998 in Virginia, uh, as part of, uh, Confederate History Month, right, uh, uh, April in Virginia is Confederate History Month. And in that year, for the first time, the governor mentioned slavery. He said that slavery degrades the human spirit and is abhorred and condemned by Virginians. And um, the many of the people of Virginia felt betrayed, right? Traicionados, betrayed by these words. The Virginia Heritage Preservation Association said that the governor's words were an insult to the people of Virginia and the result of political pressure from racist hate groups. So, yes, you can imagine, um, <laughs> I mean, those words seem pretty moderate to me. Uh, degrade the human spirit, sure. Uh, abhorred and condemned by Virginians? Evidently not. Um, because they came out and said um, back then, uh, this is a quote, master and slave loved and cared for each other and had genuine family concern. And yes, that the uh, the words of the governor were, and again, I quote, uh, a slap in the face to Confederate soldiers, their grandchildren, and the state of Virginia as a whole. So yes, um, on a recent program, I was talking about how um, it it is amusing for somebody from outside to uh, look at the controversy surrounding Spain's Ley de Memoria Histórica because people here quite often are unaware that por todas partes cuecenabas, right? That that things are pretty much the same all over. That um, the the kind of controversies you find here are in no way unique to Spain. And, well, certainly the uh, uh, the consensus among historians is that this is good for the profession, right? Because uh, it, it forces you to deal with things. Uh, no historian can ignore or simply pass over uh, the um, controversial parts of history where there is something sensitive uh you are forced to deal with it. Now, on earlier programs, I've been talking about um, 
controversies, for example, in Great Britain with a closer look at imperial history and how um, what what was called Whig, W-H-I-G, Whig, that was a political party. Uh, it believed that a power should be in parliament. It wanted a strong parliament and a, a weak king, a sort of constitutional monarchy. And Whig historians were busy writing a, um, a, a history of Great Britain as a sort of um, progress of human freedom. Slowly but surely, the things get better and better. And uh, the result is altogether admirable. And it is something that uh, British people should, uh, should take real pride in. And of course, um, there are all sorts of people who call this into question and wish to draw our attention to things that are ugly, things that uh, don't make sense or don't, don't fit into that uh, optimistic narrative so that with moments of oppression or exploitation or genocide or simple racism, the only way possible to think about history is with mixed feelings. And starting in about the 1960s, uh, people started looking at history not from the top down, but, or at least this is what it was called at the time, history from the bottom up, from the perspective of women, of uh minorities of all kinds from the perspective of the common people and so instead of uh, going to the the perspective of the people who had you know created the historical record right uh, the people responsible for all of those documents which were generated by by the people in control you would have to uh, augment that with oral history, for example, or statistical data, or archaeology, newspapers, diaries, correspondence, right? You'd have to, you have to go out of your way. And yeah, it's much more difficult uh, to do history in this way. But for the last 60 or so years, that has been the uh, the trend, the unstoppable trend. Now, you would have to go back, uh, certainly in the case of the United States, uh, back when people were writing standard history as the, you know, the rise of liberty, the rise of democracy, the apotheosis of the common man, but um, ignoring slavery and ignoring African Americans uh, as, a, as a people without history. Just the same way that uh, one tends to ignore Africa, uh, uh, try to think of Africa as as a place without history. This was also being done to African Americans, except that uh, little by little people were working. They were working hard to uh, to recover what had been happening, and and you know to ask some of the uh, uncomfortable questions, right? Uh, people who were so um, committed to natural rights, the rights of the individual, 
and at the same time uh, simply ignoring or, or denying these rights to African Americans, denying um, even citizenship so that uh, they existed but um, didn't belong. And then there were others who stated the the obvious, right, that um, economically slavery had been essential to American development. The capitalist system is uh, inconceivable without slavery. That is what generated the uh, the profits and, you know, the, the financial power that made capitalism possible, that um, African-Americans played an important role on both sides during the American Revolution, right, the War of Independence, and um, a, a very important role in the Union victory in the Civil War, and that the standard... Uh, explanation of the post-war, which was that Reconstruction was a fiasco and that uh, trying to give black people the vote was stupidity because they just made a mess of it. No, instead, you look at Reconstruction as many people conceived it, um, an idealistic attempt to create an interracial democracy. But uh, when you start to look this way, you're going against um, Hollywood movies. You're going against um, what I was speaking about earlier, the heritage sites. I mean, if it's so important, why isn't it ever mentioned? And you are certainly going against um, school curriculums because everywhere, schools, they want a simple, stable feel-good story. Parents get very angry uh, when they think that their children are being taught to hate their country. And this controversy, it continues today. Um, and uh, especially among the Republicans, right, the Republican Party, you get people in the Republican Party that are very adamant about this. But the irony is that it was precisely the Republican Party that started these new standards under President Ronald Reagan in 1983. The Department of Education published a report on the uh, regrettable, right, lamentable state of education. And it said, uh, I quote, it said, the report said, the Educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our future. And uh, this led to uh, all sorts of concerns uh, crystallized under the administration in, in the 1990s under President George Bush Jr., Trying to establish national standards and trying to, um, trying to crystallize a complete curriculum with an attempt to invigorate, right? To, to renew the study of history at all levels of elementary and secondary education. So the country's first ever national standards for what school children should be taught. What, what every child should know. And, uh, 
this was done very seriously. As I say, it was done under the Republicans. And it was done correctly. Right? They got a, a large consensus. Many, many different history teachers, educators from different areas in the world of education, all working, all in collaboration on a huge project for new standards and using, incorporating uh, up-to-date research, incorporating some of the new perspectives, incorporating uh, many of the people who had previously been excluded from history and history teaching. And in 94, this is exactly the same year as uh, what I was talking about earlier, where the uh, uh, the um, reenactment of the slave auction in colonial Williamsburg. Well, in 94, uh, just before these standards were published, um, all of a sudden you got commentators, radio commentators, and uh, columnists, people who write columns in newspapers, uh, trying to torpedo, trying to sabotage uh, what was happening, using terms like the bastardization of American history and saying things like the United States does not deserve the reputation it is receiving in multicultural classrooms and that these historians were guilty of a cynical ploy, P-L-O-Y, ploy is um, artemania, to indoctrinate children with their own hatred of America and to teach our children to feel guilt over their own heritage. Now, it is certainly no coincidence that uh, this controversy um, erupted just before election time. And, well, after that election, the um, the Republicans, for the first time since the 1950s, the Republicans controlled the Senate and the House of Representatives. And uh, since that time, uh, the, the whole thing has been uh, absolutely chaotic, right, with the accusation that... Um, uh, any history that mentions ugly um, incidents from the past is unpatriotic. And nothing should be taught to children that is likely to uh, alienate them or turn them against their country. Whereas the the other side is saying that um, by exposing young people to grim, right, tetrico, to grim chapters... In our past, we are doing them a great favor. This is essential to the creation of informed, responsible citizens. And, well, there's the other thing. Um, imagine that this is um, sordid, racist, uh, divisive. Uh, if, if history is like this, it obviously cannot be the inspiration. But does that mean we have to discard it? Does that mean we have to invent? Are we going to uh, ignore the scholarship and go with a uh, a myth? I mean, yes, uh, some people, when they don't like what they see in the mirror, uh, simply take the mirror away. 
in any case, you will see that uh, this uh, situation is not going to be solved anytime soon in the United States. And the controversy will probably get much worse before it gets better. But I've run out of time. Thank you for listening. And please listen to my next program. Ladies and gentlemen, a message. In case you've never met me, uh, by the way, my name is Richard Vaughn. In case you've never met me and you would like to, I'll be in the Madrid Book Fair, La Feria Libre de Madrid, in El Retiro. Retiro Park, I'll be in the Madrid Book Fair on the following three days. Saturday, May 27th, Saturday, June 3rd, and finally, Saturday, June 10th. When? From 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Come and join me and buy a book or several books and we can talk. I'll look forward to meeting you in the book fair. May 27th, June 3rd, 